Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to begin this morning with a question to each of you. And it's a question that you're not going to answer out loud, but it's a question that I need you to all engage with. All right? I need you to think about your answer to this question. And there will not be a test later. You will not have confession time later. But I want you to think about experiences that have shaped your life. Experiences that have shaped your life. What are some things that have happened to you, no matter if you're the oldest person in this room or the youngest person in this room, you've all had experiences that have shaped you. You've all gone through something that had an impact on your life. And I want you to think about those. What are things that have truly shaped you, whether it's good or bad? Because that's the other thing about experiences. We also have experiences that shape us in both those ways. So think about some experiences that have really shaped your life. Maybe it was the neighborhood you grew up in, and that whole community, experiencing life in that community really shaped who you are today. Uh, Maybe it was an individual person, a a parent, or a sibling, or a family member, or a friend, and knowing them, maybe their life uh, changed you. Maybe it was a tragedy in your life, or a victory in your life. Maybe it was something like a a travel experience that you had or some adventure that you were a part of. Or maybe it was a learning experience. Maybe it was a book you read or a conversation you had or a class you took, a teacher that you had. What are a couple of those key experiences that you have gone through? I I was thinking about that this week, um, and you'll see why as we get into this message But I was thinking about some of the different experiences that have shaped me. And I realized that one of the experiences that shaped me, I hadn't thought about this in I don't know how long. Um, It happened a very long time ago. It was back when I was 16 years old. And it was surrounding the first person I remember hating. Okay? And and we'll understand that as we get into this story a little bit more. But, I, I mean, there was people, you know, in elementary school or whatever that I didn't like or didn't get along with, things like that. But this is the first time when I go back in my memory that I can really truly remember the sense, the feeling of, I hate this person. Like, I wouldn't be sad if they were dead. Hate them. That bad. Hate. True hate. Okay? 16 years old. So... I'll, I'll paint this, the, the picture for you a little bit. You'll think I'm ridiculous, and you're right. Um, but when I was 16, I had this friend. I had only had my driver's license for a little while. And I had this friend from church who was a little bit younger than me, and he didn't have a driver's license. And he had called me up one day and was like, hey, um, can, you, can you pick me up and take me to the mall because I want to get some shoes? And that's what you did in the 90s. You went to the mall to get shoes. And um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. But there's a problem. And the problem was, this guy's older sister was my ex-girlfriend, all right? Um, And the problem was, when I got to his house to pick him up, she was there and said, hey, can you take me too? Because I've got some friends I want to meet at the mall. Now, it wasn't like we were like, you know, teenage drama or whatever. It wasn't like, oh, I was so close to this girl or whatever, anything like that. But I'm like, all right, fine. That was a mistake. I let her come with us, all right? Because here's what happened. She got in the car with us. We drove into the mall, pulled into the parking lot. When we pulled into the parking lot, her current boyfriend, 
who was 18 at the time, and several of his friends were all hanging out right there in the parking lot. So we pull up, and I'm like, I don't don't even know who this guy is. I've never met him before. I don't know anything about any of this. But she gets out of the car, and then this guy and his buddies all, like, surround us. And the guy in the back seat, who's my friend, is like, that's my sister's boyfriend. And I'm like, oh, great. So after a few moments of threats and intimidation, all this, you know, they're banging on the window, and I'm like, rolling down the window. And yeah, it's one of those cars with a crank, you know, 78 Toyota Celica GT, in case you wondered. Um, it's, it's, it's a 78. This is like 94 or something, right? Okay. So I, I'm, I'm like, who's this going on? And I'll, he's cussing at me and yelling at me, get out of the car, we're going to beat you and all this kind of, you know, threats, intimidation, all that kind of stuff. Now, I was a prideful 16-year-old kid, but even a prideful 16-year-old kid wasn't going to fly the door open and try to take on six guys. I might, have, I might have thought that was possible, but it wouldn't have been, all right? But as I eventually, what happened was they just wandered off and did their own thing, and, and I drove away, but my pride was bruised, and I was angry. First, I was scared, then I was angry, and all of this, and as it settled in, my anger turned to hate, and all of a sudden, I realized I hate this guy that I don't even know. And I don't even care about the girl. It has nothing to do with that. It's just this guy that would do this to me. I hate him. Now, I never saw the guy ever again in my life. That was the one instant that I'd ever seen him, ever, which is probably good for both of us. But that hatred, that experience, that sense of hatred shaped me. And it allowed me to see things in my heart and mind that I didn't really know were there before that. And I still remember the event 30 plus years later. I don't think I'd ever hated someone until that point. Now, here's the thing about experiences that happen. And sometimes they're like that. They're unexpected. You show up. It's a few minutes. I mean, I don't know. In my mind, it seemed extended. It was probably like three minutes or something that this whole thing took place. But experiences, they shape us, but they don't have to define us. They don't have to define us. In fact, God's plan for every human is that they would be able to transcend their experiences and to truly be transformed by his grace. All right? So there's lots of things that may have come into your mind when you're thinking about, whoa, that really affected me. Now, hopefully for some of you, it was a good experience that came to mind. But for many of us, when we talk about things like this, the first thing that comes to mind is actually really hard things that have happened to us. Bad stuff, tough stuff. But God would would have us move beyond those things. God's a God of redemption. He took the chaos of the universe and formed the natural world that we enjoy. He took dirt and made it into a human. He can also take the brokenness of our lives and turn them into a beautiful masterpiece. God desires to make us whole. All right? When people are young... They tend to be optimistic about the potential of their lives. Okay? That's part of why I like being around young people, um, youth, kids. They're optimistic most of the time. They usually see the bright side in things. Not all kids. There's a few that are kind of born a little cynical. Um, but for the most part, there's hope. There's future in front of them. Now, what happens as we, we go through life, and, and I will say um, the comparison that is found in social media today, I think, 
robs more and more of that optimism from our younger people. Um, But um, as life moves forward, what happens is you start experiencing setbacks and failures and and difficulties and tragedies and things like that. And it it impacts you. It shapes you. It, It softens some of that optimism, causes it to decline. Some people end up losing hope altogether. And it's because of the experiences that have shaped them, the things they have gone through. They're finally at the spot where they're like, I just can't do it anymore. We see that in our culture everywhere. But that's not God's plan for them or for you. Every experience, good or bad, can be redeemed by God. Every experience. He will go through those events with us and even go back to those hard places and bring healing to our past. We still carry some scars and consequences all the way until heaven, but not only is God capable to heal you, he longs to. Now, for the rest of the book of Genesis, we're going to study the life of Joseph. Some of the key events that, that shaped Joseph, we're going to get into. Uh, I mean, we've got from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50, There's a lot of Genesis devoted to Joseph. And most of the experiences that are recorded in Scripture for us were difficult and painful, way harder than an altercation in a mall parking lot, okay? I mean, he went through some serious things, but we're going to see that God redeems even those things in his life. And as we study his life, what I want you to do is I want you to look for parallels in your own life and places that maybe you need God to do some healing work in you. All right? So, in Genesis chapter 37, let's begin by reading the first four verses. Now, the first couple sentences here actually tie back to verse, uh, chapter 36, which was a big genealogy of Esau. All right? So that's where it starts off, and it says in, in chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. All right, that's left over from last week. Jacob was Joseph's dad. But here in verse 2, it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them, the brothers, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. That's the phrase that you might be like, oh yeah, I do know this story, right? The robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now you see why I thought about the story of teenage hate, right? (laughs) Um, Why that came to my mind. So we meet Joseph here as a teenager, a 17-year-old. And being a typical little brother, even at 17, basically he goes and tattles on his older brothers, comes to the father and says, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, all right? And his brothers, um, you know, they don't like that. Um, you have to remember, uh, Joseph was, was much younger than his brothers. In some cases, maybe 10, 15, possibly even 20 years younger. All right, so, so these guys are in their late 20s, early 30s, and here comes a, their kid brother, their 17-year-old brother, tattling on their, them to their dad. 
They're like, all right, that was cute when you were a little kid, but now you're just annoying, (laughs) right? And that's what's going on. And the fact that their father loved him so much made things worse. It tells us there in verse 4 that they hated him. They hated him. And hate is a powerful emotion. In fact, hate causes people to do things that they would not do otherwise. They would never even consider some of the, the actions that people will do when it's driven by hate. Now, Joseph was not only Jacob's favorite because he was the son of his old age, as it says here in the text, but also because he was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And if you've been following with us through Genesis, you remember all that story. And Rachel died giving birth to Joseph's little brother, Benjamin. So so Joseph had a special place in, in Jacob's heart simply because he had loved Rachel. He had worked, actually, he not only worked the seven years for her, but the seven years for her before that when he didn't get her. He'd worked all this time for her. He loved her. He cared for her. She was his favorite. And then Joseph was her son. And so he had this special place in his heart. Now, I want you to recognize here, we've already seen a few experiences that would have deeply shaped Joseph. Just from what we pick up here. Um, His mother died when he was young. That'll shape someone. He was raised in a large blended family. All these different siblings from all these different women. He was the favorite of his father, which caused him to be rejected and hated by his brothers. Any one of those things would have shaped a person. And you put all of those together and you can start to see, wow, this young man probably had some pretty deep issues already at 17 years old. And I don't want you to underestimate the importance of the robe that is described here. This robe. Now, now this was long before shopping malls and Amazon Prime, right? Um, It was also before global fashion and mass-produced clothing. And colorful fabric was not common. It was not common. And to have some multicolored robe that, that this kid has would have been expensive, it would have been rare, and it would have really caused a person to stand out, probably in a pretty obnoxious way. <laughs> uh, it, can you, you picture the rest of the villagers in the area, you know, when all the, the sons of Jacob come in, oh, here's the 12 boys of Jacob, they're all coming into town one afternoon, and you're like, what, what's that one kid wearing? Who is this and what is going on? Everybody else is in drab, normal, organic colors. And then here's Joseph, pow, popping, <laughs> right? Coming, coming down the, the street. I don't know what Jacob was thinking when he did this, but he was driving a terrible wedge into his own family. He was setting Joseph up to just be isolated and, and hated, ultimately, by his brothers. Now, I think that we, we need to say something about that because we see it here, this favoritism. There's no place for favoritism in a family. There's not. Now, that's not to say there's no favoritism in families, <laughs> but there's not supposed to be favoritism in families. It happens. As parents, we need to recognize that God uniquely created each person and put him in the families that he chose to put them in. And when God puts you in a role as a parent, we are called to love every person that we're called to parent. The child that is just like you, 
and the child that is nothing like you. The child that loves to do the same things you love to do and the child that doesn't want to have, they want to do their own thing and don't like any of the same things you like. We're to love them all. In blended families, especially, you are to love those kids that are not your biological kids, just as if they were. That's the example that God gives to us. That's how the church works. Do you know that as, as Christians, as people of the family of God, every one of us are adopted members of the family? Every one of us, we're all adopted into the family of God. And there's no favorites in the church family. Sometimes it's easy for us to, to see people placed in different roles or with different skills or different gifts. And we think, oh man, God must really love them more than he even loves us, you know? But that's not true. That's not the way it is. God loves all of us and wants to pour love into our lives. And he calls us to love one each other. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 to 11, and verse 19, it says this. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. If God were playing favorites, Jesus would not have been the one that was sent to the cross. He just wouldn't. Sorry, guys. He's perfect. We're not. There's eight billion other good candidates for the cross, but not Jesus. God doesn't play favorites. We're not called to play favorites. So when you see Jacob here doing what he's doing with Joseph, it's just wrong. All right? And so this hatred now that is in the, his brothers, we're going to see it go to level two in verse five. Genesis 37, verse five. It says, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. All right, so a sheaf is, um, it's actually still done this way uh, even now in, in places, agricultural places that raise grain, barley, wheat, whatever, um, that don't have big machinery to harvest things like tractors or whatever. What people do is they go out into the field and, and they cut these, these chunks of the grain, they pull it all together as much as their arms can get around it, and then they tie it together, right? And that's one sheaf. And then they take those things now in these these kind of portable things and they let them dry out by standing, stacking them together and letting them dry. So there's a, there's a little image here um, of a sheaf for you, just a drawing. Like, so it's this one, this one sheaf, Joseph says, yeah, you know, my sheaf is there and we're out there, we're all doing what we're doing in the field and my sheaf stands up and then all yours comes crowding around and it starts bowing down. And the brothers are like, okay, really? Yeah, that sounds about right, Joseph. Did your sheaf, was it wearing multicolored robes too, you know? That's what's going on. 
Now, why couldn't Joseph have kept this to himself? I don't know. But he doesn't learn his lesson. Because look at verse 9. Then, verse 9, it says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. And I'm sure they're thinking, oh, great. Here we go again. What is it, Joseph? Tell us. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So this is hatred level three now at this point. He still didn't learn his lesson. So obviously Joseph had a pride problem, right? Maybe, maybe not. As we're going to learn as this story goes, there was actually more to this dream than just a little brother trying to rile up his brothers. It wasn't just this thing that he's like, oh, I'm going to tell them this. That really made them mad last time. Wait till they hear this one. It, It wasn't that. It was a dream that was from God. And maybe these dreams felt different to him. And he's just like, I'm supposed to tell somebody this. I don't know how. I don't know what to say. But I I should say something. I don't know. But the brothers were jealous. And Jacob, his father, was suspicious. Now, why would Jacob keep this in mind? If you remember, the first time Jacob had any interaction with God, uh, when God appeared to him, it was in a dream. So Jacob would have been one that was saying, I know how some of those dreams can be. I need to pay attention to this. I need to hold on to this and see if there's, there's something more going on here. All right, and then it says in verse 12, it says, now his brothers, so some time has passed by, and it says, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, I'll show you real quick, just for those of you who are curious, I've got a map here for you. I know some of you love your maps, just like me. So here they are. So this is Canaan, right? The land of Canaan. This is all the promised land. This is the River Jordan, all right, that comes down through here. This is the the top of the Dead Sea. So they've been living here at Hebron, which is down here at the bottom of the map. That's where Jacob is right now and the rest of the family. Well, at, at different times when they're, they're looking for food for their flocks, they would wander all through all this area. But this time they've heard, oh, we've got good pasture land up here in Shechem. So he sent them all the way up here. It's around 40 miles or so up to Shechem. And then he sends Joseph up here. Joseph makes this trek, doesn't find him here. And then the guy says, oh, no, they're actually at Dothan, a little bit farther north and to the west. Okay, so 40 miles, that's uh, typically when you look at this, it's, um, you know, about 20 miles a day is what these people could walk. You or I, we would be hurting if we had to walk 20 miles in a day, <laughs> most, most of us. But they'd usually walk around 20 miles a day or so. So it's a two-day trip, one way, for Joseph to go up to Shechem. So he's, he's spending some time traveling up here. He goes a little farther to Dothan, all right? And Jacob just wanted an update. 
He's like, hey, go check on your brothers. Haven't heard from them in a while. Want to make sure things are good. So he sends them up there. All right, and then in verse 18, here's what happens. They saw him, the brothers, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Yeah. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, that's the oldest son, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now, in this land, people would often dig uh, looking for water, hoping that they could turn it into a well. So in these pasture lands, you would regularly find these half-dug wells, these big pits. Um, that would be dry because they they didn't make it to water. They were looking for um, water in the water table. They couldn't find it. And so it wouldn't have been strange to just find a pit. You might be like, well, where's the pit? Like, um, it wouldn't have been strange to find a pit here in the wilderness. But we see here how serious this hatred was toward Joseph, at least with some of the brothers. Reuben, the oldest, was attempting to kind of let the brothers rough him up a little bit. Yeah, you can scare him. You can kind of put him in his place. You can do that. Just don't kill him. I mean, come on, guys. Let's not kill him. Don't go to extremes. But apparently, after they drop him in the pit, Reuben figures, okay, well, he should be safe for a little while. I'm going to head into town, or I'm going to go check on the flocks. Something happens because Reuben leaves, okay? And, and we see here now in verse 25, it says, and then they, the brothers, they all sat down to eat. And looking up, They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, that's brother number four, said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers Listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe. And slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, 
I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, we've already talked about some of the events that would shape Joseph's life. And as we already saw, some of those things were pretty big deals already. But this one has to be the biggest. This has to be the most impacting thing that would have shaped him. This was the worst of all. His own brothers take him, threaten to kill him, and then sell him to be a slave, never to see him ever again, or so they think. And to cover their tracks, they fabricated evidence to make everyone believe that he was just tragically killed. Their own father. But how must Joseph have felt as he walked all of those miles to Egypt? Here's a 17-year-old kid that's been the favorite of the household. All of a sudden, in a matter of minutes, everything has been changed. His entire life's been ripped out from under him, turned upside down, and now all of a sudden he's chained to these other slaves being taken to some place he's never been to in his life. How must he have felt? He definitely knew that his brothers didn't like him from before, but this, this is awful. Every morning, I imagine, on that journey, and that's quite a walk, from where they're at in Canaan all the way down south to Egypt. Every morning, I'm sure he's waking up just thinking, oh man, that had to be a nightmare. And I'm waking up and it's over. No, here we go again. Get up, start walking. Every morning, his emotions would have overwhelmed him as he remembered what was true. Now, I don't want us to rush right into the next chapter, even though that's where we're gonna find hope. That's where we're going to start seeing God at work in redemption. But we're not going to go there this week. Instead, I want us to take a little bit of time to process our own experiences. So go back to your life-shaping experiences that I asked you to think about at the beginning of this message. I told you, think about one or two things that really have shaped you. Whether it was good, whether it was bad. Think about those things. Go back to those events. Think about some of the hardest ones. Here's the thing. As people, it's natural for us to want to run away from the things that have hurt us. We want to get as far away from it as we possibly can. That's just natural. That's, that's how we function. We have these, as, as human beings, we have these elaborate protective mechanisms that we can put in play. We can hide things from our own minds. We can repress things. We can push them away. I, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on that. There's people in this room that can tell you a lot more about the psychology of all that than I certainly can. But here's the thing. What we've learned is that when we take some of these experiences and we take some of these events and we try to just pretend it didn't happen and try to stuff it down or hide it away, somewhere locked away in our subconscious, Uh, it has damage, not only to your mental health, but your physical health. But what I want to tell you about today is it also deeply affects your spiritual health and your ability to actually grow and be formed like God wants to form you. When we have these things hanging on us, they're wounds that need to be healed and have to be dealt with. Now, in the moment when you're in the middle of one of these really heavy things, 
in the moment, the best we can hope for is survival. That's when we're just praying, God, get us through. I don't know what to, how to deal with this, how to process this. I can't. It's more than I can handle. I'm overwhelmed. Just get me through. And that's, that's a good prayer to pray. But once the, the life-altering experience is passed, what do we do next? Because like I said, every one of us have these experiences. Ours may not be quite as extreme as Joseph's. Ours may be worse than Joseph's. Everybody has these things. What do we do when, when we've gone through something like that? Do we just grin and bear it? Do we try to get on with life? Do we act like it never happened? We try to lock it away in the vault? Here's the thing. We are not made to contain all that toxic waste. Bad experiences always include sin. It may not be your own sin. It may be the sins that somebody else did to you. Now, should Joseph have not probably told those guys the, the dreams and tattled on their, his brothers? Yeah, probably. Uh, there may have been, we could find some fault in him. But really, what happened? It's the hatred of these brothers coming down onto Joseph for no really good reason. Humans are not designed to hold sin, ours or other people's. And carrying those burdens wears us down. Instead, God calls us to release those things into his care. And if you have those things, painful things, places of bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred, abuse, sorrows, Jesus invites you to come to him to give him those hurts and be healed. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He might lift you up. He might raise you up. Casting all your anxieties on him. Some translations say all your cares, all your worries, all your fears, all your sorrows. Casting all that on him because he cares for you. In the, in the Gospels, we have a story of a leper who came to Jesus. And, and leprosy was a disease that people would get, um, they still get it today, it's, it's far less common today. But back in those days, it was incurable. Now, they can actually cure people with leprosy. It's a whole treatment of, of it's a year-long treatment in a lot of severe cases. But in the old days, there was no cure for le- leprosy. And leprosy is actually a really good image of sin um, for us. Because what leprosy does as a disease is it attacks your nervous system in such a way that you lose sensation. Your nerves get, get uh, desensitized. And so what happens a lot of times is you'll, you'll inadvertently injure yourself, sometimes repeatedly, because you have no feeling in your extremities. So for a lot of people that have leprosy, what happens is eventually they they become very disfigured and and deformed because they'll lose fingers or toes or or, or parts of their body from injuring them and then get infections and things like that without realizing it. So so in many cases, leprosy was a horrible disease that would leave people very disfigured and and, and injured um, with loss of limbs and all of that. But that's a, that's a good analogy for the way that sin infects us. And so this leper who is, is dealing with that and dealing with what is happening in his body comes to Jesus. And he, he, it says there in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 40, it'll be on the screen for you. It says, and a leper came to him, to Jesus, 
imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. This leper comes to Jesus thinking, I have no other hope to be cured. I have no way of getting rid of this. I have no way of letting this out of my body. But if I come to you, you can make me clean. And it says there in verse 41, And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now listen, these experiences that we've talked about, they have shaped you. We're all shaped by these things. But they do not have to define you. And they do not have to define your future. And as we're going to see in the coming chapters here, this won't be the end for Joseph. It'd be a very sad story if that's it. That's all we see. And he rode off into the sunset, walked off as a slave, and that was the end of his life. That's not what we see here in this particular story. In fact, God had great plans for Joseph, even though this terrible um, events happened to him. And if you are a Christian here today, God is already at work in your life. You might not know it. You might not always see all the evidence of it. But God is at work in your life because he's at work reshaping you. So we're, we're, we're misformed and malformed and malshaped by sin and the effects of sin in our lives and in our hearts and in our world and all those things. We're, we're, we're tweaked in these ways and broken in these ways, but God's at work reshaping us, transforming us, changing us. If you're not being cha- transformed and being changed, you may not be walking with God because God always is reshaping us. He's always at work. Now, don't freak out if you don't see all that reshaping all the time (laughs) because that's the way it sometimes is. But he has plans to redeem you. The Bible tells us that one day he will wipe away every tear and make all things new. But we have the opportunity of giving ourselves to that work. Don't resist the healing that he wants to do in your heart. Those things that you have in the back of your mind or those, those, those hidden away uh, events and experiences that have shaped you, God even wants to go into those places in your heart and life and heal those too. It doesn't matter if it was 30 years ago. It doesn't matter if it was last week. He wants to heal you and you can trust him in it. Don't resist the healing that God will do. As a church, one of the priorities that we have is that our lives would be changed. It's built into our our mission statement that we want to be transformed. And and that's not just a one-time event. I think that's something that Christians sometimes get confused about. They hear the gospel message and say, okay, I'm supposed to just put my trust in Jesus and he'll save me from my sins and he will make a place in heaven for me. That is all true. It's good. But what we often forget, the other half of the gospel that we forget, is that the gospel is good news because you're actually being transformed now too. And you're being changed now in this life. Yes, the life to come is going to be perfection. But between now and then, there's transformation that needs to happen. And our hope is that every part of us would come under that transforming gaze of God. So my challenge to you this morning as we finish here today is to allow God to have complete access to all you are. Because here's the thing. 
I know that even as I brought this up for you at the beginning of this message, for some of you, you may have even skimmed on the surface then too. You might have said, okay, I can think of some events that shaped me. But then as we talked a little more and you're like, ooh, but I'm not talking about those events. Because those events are deep and dark and hidden. And those events are the ones that maybe have shaped you at a deeper place than you don't even realize. But what I'm trying to tell you here and I'm I'm encouraging you with is God wants to even get into those places. He wants to, to be God over all that we are at every place. And so that is how we become the people that he's created us to be. So my challenge today, allow God to have complete access, truly complete access to all that you are. And I know and I believe that God wants to do um, something in all of us to heal uh, the depths of our being. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your heart for us. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you extend to even the the deepest places of pain that we have. And we need that grace, Lord. We need that transformation, that healing that can come from you and can come from nowhere else. But I also know, Lord, that we don't like to think about those things and we don't want to deal with those things. But I think that today you're calling some of us to truly lay down our, our walls. You want to break through the walls and you want to come into the deepest places of our souls and you want to do a work of healing. And I know that sometimes we think we've already dealt with it and so you don't need to deal with it. But Lord, I just pray that every one of us would be completely free. Maybe there's sin that we need to confess to you today. Maybe there's the sins of others that we need to confess how they have impacted us to you. And so God, I just ask that today you would give my brothers and sisters your courage. Courage to dig deep courage to truly lay their hearts open before you and that your spirit would begin moving among us in this room this morning in in truly doing a work of healing God none of us need to be carrying unforgiveness and bitterness none of us need to have hatred in our hearts you've called us to be people of love not people of hate And we have to trust that you, the almighty judge, you will deal with all of the things that have been done to us. You will deal with all of the wickedness that's been done in the world. You will deal with all of the sin and all the repercussions of all that one day. But right now, you call us to cast those cares onto you, to give them to you, and that you will begin doing the healing in our hearts. And so, Lord, today we give you everything that we have, everything that we are. And we pray, Lord, that you would heal us, you'd make us whole. 
I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.